we are looking at a species of seaweed that disappeared off the Sydney coast but is now being strategically brought back, why that's important, how it represents hope in the rebuilding and regenerating of our beautiful planet. If all the birds could fly right now As high as me somehow They could see all the things I've been dreaming of These wings of mine flutter inside They shimmy and they glide Breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 312. I have a wonderful professor joining me today, Adriana Virgis. She is a, uh, she lives in Sydney, but she grew up in Spain on holidays in the, on the beautiful island of Mallorca, and her love of the ocean runs deep and wide. And uh, working with a team, she is actually actually rebuilding the crayweed species on the Sydney coastline. And we're going to talk a little bit about what it means for these different seaweeds to disappear, um, how we can actually build back the populations and what it actually represents from a biodiversity perspective, from a food system perspective, uh, and from the health of the planet as well. She uh, helps us clarify some of the aspects of climate change that are confusing and worrying and sometimes just seem way too big to be a part of the solution. Today's episode is very very much uh, one of hope, one of concrete cause and effect and rebuilding and how positive that is and also how we can all get involved. And I came across uh, her and her team's work through Damon Gamo, who they had partnered with to release a hoodie made of seaweed as the material and the sales of that hoodie helping this team fund the project to rebuild the crayweed on the coast of Sydney. Uh, Now, there are many places all around the world tuning in to listen to this and uh, I get that a lot of you guys might not be Sydney locals. However, what I love about this example is it shows us that when we put the right teams of research and science in place, when we put the right comms out to help people know how they can get involved and when we then start to actually do the work bit by bit, we can have a hugely positive effect in regenerating our planet and restoring ecosystems. And I just love that we're able to talk about this work today and that I can share Adriana's beautiful uh, outlook um, and a philosophical as well as scientific conversation about restoring marine habitat Um She was awarded a PhD from the University of Barcelona in 2007 and has published over 90 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. Uh, She is passionate about restoration solutions to protect and conserve marine ecosystems, including seagrass meadows, kelp forests and coral reefs. So if this is an area that you have been worried about but not really understanding how you can be a part of the solution, 
Uh, today's show is going to make you feel a whole heck more positive at the end than it might be feeling right now for you. So I'm going to hook into that in a little minute uh, and um, let you enjoy that chat. Uh, but first, I just want to remind you that the year is nearing an end, uh, as are the two offers from our wonderful supporters for the podcast this week. Oz Climate, who's been our major sponsor all year, gives you 10% off their already discounted beautiful dehumidifiers and, um, well, beautiful dehumidifiers. How about we say like um, kick-ass dehumidifiers, super effective, fantastic units, and the Winix air purifiers with the code LOWTOXLIFE at the checkout. Um the thing with dehumidifiers that I love the most is that they help us, especially those of us who live in humid areas or who maybe have a shady, darker room at the south end or the north end of the house, depending on which hemisphere you're living in, they help us have a preventative strategy around mold growth. And that for me is far better than waiting until the mold comes up and figuring out how to deal with it, um, given mold can be so toxic to us in the cleaning process, quite difficult to clean, very difficult to kill. Most effective is to remove, and that often uh, entails some pretty intenso um, solutions. So why not prevent? Uh, if you have indoor air humidity over 60% regularly, and you can check that with something called a hygrometer, then you need a dehumidification solution. Whether you have... Um, um, an HVAC or re re split system uh, that accounts for dehumidification as one of its functions, uh, or whether you get dehumidifiers. I can't recommend Oz Climate enough. You can even give them a call, talk about your floor plan and decide on what kind of unit for your climate and your floor plan is going to be right for you, whether you need one, whether you need four, uh, depending on how big your place is. They're just awesome people doing awesome work to help you have a healthy home, and I adore them. Uh, so code Lotox Life, 10% off, Oz Climate is the business, AUS Climate, and I hope you make the most of that, especially if you're here on the east coast of Australia. We are heading into the humid months. Get your preventative strategy in place. Uh, we then, of course, also have a wonderful offer, and I love Solid Technics because these are multi-century low-tox uh, cookware items. Whether you go for their nickel-free stainless steel Noni range, whether you go for the new utensils, which I'm super excited about receiving from the Kickstarter that I backed of theirs a few months ago, um, whether you go for the brilliant um, Oz Ion range, so the cast iron range, whatever it is you want, it will not last you your lifetime, but the people who come after you for several centuries in your family. And that is pretty special as well as being low tox during your lifetime. Uh, there's a lot of greenwashing in the frying pan space and people saying um, Teflon free, but then we always have to ask ourselves, well, what's in it then? And if it's not... Um, free from all of the PFAS, the nonstick coatings, then it ain't good. And then you have the issue of the green type pans, which have the ceramic coatings that are really thin and flimsy, and they die in the button one or two years because you scratch them and then the nonstick goes and you still have to replace those. So that's a huge landfill issue when it comes to those. What I love about Solid Techniques is it's the win-win on both the durability front from a landfill perspective, but also on the low tox 
box front uh, and then on the investment front in terms of how long they last. So you have a super sweet deal spending $279 Australian or more on any of the items in their range, which if you're investing in one or two pieces, that's all it's going to take. And you receive a free 18 centimeter Oz iron pan. So a good little compact single serve heat up or frying a couple of eggs in the morning, making a single serve omelet, um, sauteing one of the veg for dinner, that kind of size pan is really, really handy. I use mine all the time and that's worth under just $100 for free. Uh, so the offer runs out midnight, Sunday, 18th of December. Your code is LOWTOX and all the details are in the show notes if you didn't catch that. Now, let's talk about... Uh, making our crayweed uh, nice and healthy again on the coastline and um, looking at what I see to be one of the most tangible, tangible and effective uh, projects out there to give us hope for doing more work like this in the regenerative space when it comes to building our planet back, uh, which is what we need to do. We don't just need to sustain things anymore. It's not good enough. It's all about regeneration. And I hope this episode with Professor Adriana Verges gives you as much hope as it gave me. Enjoy. Hello, Adriana. How are you? Very well. Very happy to be with you, Alex. Uh, I'm so happy to have this conversation because I am a firm believer that we can't protect and champion what we don't truly understand. Uh, It's very hard to fight for something you don't know that you even need to be believing in, right? And uh, the ocean is a mystery to a lot of people, isn't it? That's so true. Yeah. And I think it's amazing how little we know you know even people that live right next to the ocean uh and i think in australia in particular we're very good at at surfing the waves at being the surface but actually uh surprisingly um not many people go down and have a look at what's underneath mm. uh, so, and, and you're right if 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 we don't understand what's there yeah it's hard to protect it mm. so what made you want to go below the waves Ah, uh, you know what? I've always just loved everything about the ocean. So I, I like I like the to be in the surface. I like to be underneath. Uh, you know, so um, I've been fascinated by just the mystery of it. I guess ever since I was a kid, it was my happy place. And um, and then, you know, I remember vividly the the kind of first time I even thought of becoming a marine biologist. It was. Um, it was when I was about 14 and we were given in school a list of degrees that you can study and, you know, we had to make a choice about what subjects to pick and blah, blah, blah. And it was this really long list of what sounded, <laughs> so many of the degrees sounded. Yeah, so because we all know exactly what we want to do when we're 14, right? But amongst all of those, there was science of the sea. And I was like, oh, that mm. sounds interesting. And um, what I love about it is that to understand the ocean, uh, you kind of need to take a very holistic point of view. Um, so you need to kind of understand the atmosphere and the chemistry and the physics and the biology and everything is completely interconnected. So connectivity mm. in the ocean is is just, you know, it's, it's everything, right? Um, Absolutely. And it's I mean, just, I mean, but uh, the more conversations I have, I was talking with a body worker yesterday, so a very physical practitioner style conversation, and yet it came back to the ecosystem, 
the mm. full overall holistic picture and then how all the tiny little parts form together in harmony to make a whole. And this is a repeat theme uh, and just becomes more and more obvious that health, whether we're talking about the health of the ocean, whether we're talking about health of the atmosphere, our bodies, creatures, whatever, um, soil, it all comes down to a holistic view. Yes, I agree. Mm. And I guess, you know, so, yeah, if you think about it, that connectivity is equally important everywhere. Mm. In the ocean, it's just so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. cannot not see it, you know. Mm. So, so yeah, so that was very apparent from the beginning and, and definitely drew me in. Um, and also just the fact that we know so little about yeah. it was also kind of exciting. You know, there was uh-huh. that kind of history, that kind of, you know, there's, I like the idea of 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 trying to understand something that is um, yeah that is more unknown, um, even though of course we'll never understand it all and that doesn't matter. But um, I quite like the idea of of yeah creating new knowledge and and understanding our oceans better. Mm. I love what you just said about um, even though we're not going to understand it all, we're never going to understand it all. Do you feel like that's part of the um the way forward in a positive way is that relaxation in a tiny part where you're resigned to never knowing it all because I feel like for the mental health piece around climate change uh um, public health whatever it is um if we're so we try to compartmentalize and understand everything and almost make ourselves too stressed to see the big picture in doing so yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're. I think I see what you mean, and I, I think you're right in the sense that, um, in fact, we probably now, even though we still don't know a lot of what is knowable, <laughs> um, we still probably know more than enough uh, mm. to make progress. To yes, for example, in in my case, uh, you know, I work in restoration. We have enough science to to do what we need to do. Actually, yeah, more knowledge is not what's stopping us. Um, it's actually more potentially what's stopping us is the lack of um clarity that the, the lack of drive the lack of prioritization of what needs to happen right so kind of all coming all of us coming together and going no no, no. um we need to fix nature first and then we'll do something else right but nature kind of needs to we need to start putting it first actually yeah. and by putting yeah. it first we're, you know we're putting our own species first as well right because we depend on it so so intimately um, but yeah, so I think, um, yeah, so there's the knowledge, um, which is incredibly important. But then in terms of uh, caring for the environment, there's a whole lot of other um, aspects that are also really important. And and I think connecting with the environment in a more um, emotional way is actually super important. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying about you know, you can't care about something that you don't even know. So you kind of need to connect with the environment in an emotional way to go, no, it's really worth saving. You know, the Great Barrier Reef was today put in the list of, or, you know, there's a report that argues that it should be classified as endangered. And yes, it should, of course it should, because because it is. And unless we do something radical to protect it, it, it will continue to decline. Yeah. Um, I almost feel like we need to give our own species the endangered label because we also are, if we're going to be truly pragmatic about this, um, for us to go, oh, we're endangered too? So what helps us thrive? Oh, okay, if I look after that and that and that. 
um, yeah, I mean, I maybe we'll do something a bit more meaningful. Yeah, it's a it's a matter of what time scale you're gonna look at it, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think what what's in danger, then, and maybe rightly so, is our kind of old school capitalistic way of doing yeah. things like that. That's just you know unsustainable. Mm-hmm. So that 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 is what we need to change, I think. Yeah, and and I was talking with a friend recently around that word sustainable and. Uh, when something is unsustainable, that means it's definitely not regenerate regeneratable either. And and so it's actually worse because even if we can't keep everything the same, that means it's definitely not great for us. Um, yeah, we need to actually go further and look at systems that regenerate. So that's why I'm interested in the work you're doing with the um the the coast and the research um just here beyond sydney um what if if you were in an elevator with a bunch of people and you just had a few floors with them to tell them just how important the algal forests are on our coastlines um to the overall health of the planet the sea what what do you say when you're really just trying to get it across in an impactful way? You, you know what for me the the thing that motivates action more than anything is giving hope. You know, so we have done a lot of damage. You know, I can tell you that we've lost ninety five percent of our giant kelp forests in Tasmania already. Um, you know, in in Sydney, we lost the entire forests of crayweed that used to be here. But I guess what what excites me is the fact that we now have a lot of the tools, a lot of the science that we need to reverse this and make things better. And we are starting to do that. And with a bit more help, with a bit more money, with a bit more effort behind it, we can turn things around and and make our environment so much better. Um, you know, we can we could you know we could swim in Sydney Harbour even on the inner bits of the harbour. How wonderful that be, would that be, right? Yeah, without getting an ear infection. <laughs> exactly. So it's actually about making our life better. I mean, mm. we are also regenerating biodiversity. Um, and a whole, you know, ecosystem that used to be there and it's disappeared, but it, it actually benefits us directly mm. because of the beauty that we enjoy, because of, you know, if you're into fishing, if you're into catching lobsters or whatever, like they depend on the seaweed forest. So th- there's a there's also a selfish reason to regenerate these ecosystems, right? Which yeah. is to- they provide food, absolutely. Exactly. And mm. oxygen, and they lock carbon away, and you know they 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 provide all these um, benefits to us that we've just been taken for granted uh, for so long. And now that they're disappearing, it's when we're going. Hold on a minute, you know, to to like if if we had to clean up the water from nutrients, the nutrients that normally would get taken up by the seaweeds. If we had to do that with like you know, a, a water cleaning kind of station, it would cost, you know, millions of dollars, right? So that's that's all being done for free by these ecosystems along the coast. Um, they it sounds the water a lot, clean. Oh, it yeah. sounds a lot like the so-called tech food solutions that we're being presented with, say, um, whether it's processed soy protein nuggets or um lab created meats when you have cows that can lock away carbon through regenerative farming 
and provide completely natural bioavailable food for humans. Whether or not you choose to eat meat, you can go and eat the plants instead. That's fine. But it sounds like, you know, you were just saying there's a selfish benefit to regenerating these underwater forests because then we get more lobsters. So, again, we create a regenerative carbon lockaway system which produces more food for humans in a natural bioavailable form that our biology understands. Do you feel like there's a really annoying um, uh, dissonance between scientists in like the ones that are hired by big agri um, businesses and the ones in the research who are just looking at the facts less emotionally, perhaps less money driven um, in terms of where the pushes are and where the funding is? I think that the, the conflict is more with, um, you know, there's a lot of commercial interests that push for news growth and development and urbanization and, you know, and that against, yeah, the, the you know, conservation movement and, 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 you know, this regeneration kind of movement. I mean, they could, they can seem like they're, they're pushing in different directions, but sometimes, well, increasingly all the time, I feel that it's actually by bringing the two things together that we're going to find the solution. So find the overlaps. That's right. And mm. and actually, you know, there's so much wealth and jobs that can be created via restoration, for example. We have a big job in our hands. The kind of um, repair that we need to do in the planet is actually huge. Uh, it's going to keep us very busy for a long time. And it can be a source of yeah income and wealth and job creation, um, which obviously we need. So I actually think it's when you combine the two things, you know, the, the economic benefits and the ecological benefits and social and cultural, that's, that's where we want to be. And I think it does offer all of that. Um, yeah. And for me, what I love about that is technology is kind of being brought right back to the square one of the goal being natural um, functioning systems. So we're actually using that modernity, that brilliance yeah. to bring it back to where we should be. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> yeah, we're just trying to imitate nature because it does it so well, basically. Yeah, exactly. And so you mentioned Crayweed and I loved Operation Crayweed, which is a big fundraising drive for you guys right now with the seaweed hoodie. And mm -hmm. I know you partnered with Damon Gamo for that. Um, can you tell us why Crayweed? What is it? Um, mm -hmm. And um, why is it so special to work on, focus and grow? So crayweed is a really beautiful uh, seaweed. It's, it can be quite big, up to two, three meters. It has this beautiful golden color and it supports unique biodiversity. And we were just talking about lobster and abalone, which are the two most valuable fisheries in Australia. Well, they associate with crayweed very strongly. But so do, you know, hundreds of little microscopic creatures that live in and amongst it. The reason to focus on it is because it went missing. So it went missing from 70 kilometers of coastline between Palm Beach and Cronulla in the Sydney metropolitan coastline. And it disappeared because of pollution, we think, because of sewage pollution. Uh, so back in the 1980s, 1970s, the water in Sydney used to be polluted by sewage nearly all of the time. And that's because the sewage was disposed of very close to the shore. Um, there was poor, you know, it wasn't very well treated. 
So a lot of the biodiversity died and disappeared. Um, then Sydney Water installed deep ocean, ocean atfalls, which now there's better treatment of the water, but also the sewage is now released in deep water where it mixes with the water column straight away. And then the, the excess nutrients kind of diffuse, right? So they, they're not damp. Um, so that happened and the biodiversity in Sydney improved dramatically since the since the 90s when that happened. But crayweed just never came back by itself. Um, and that's possibly because of its life cycle. It's just the way it reproduces. It kind of needs there needs to be, you know, lots of moms and dads together to kind of create a population. So when the whole thing is gone, it's very hard for the populations to kickstart. Kick but once it is there, it's exactly. happily self-sustaining. Exactly. So yeah. we focus on crayweed because some colleagues of us, um, led by Melinda Coleman, they discovered that crayweed had gone missing, which mm -hmm. unbelievably it took 20 years for scientists to even realise. And wow. So what, like work. someone was looking for some one day and saying, hey, Bob, I can't <laughs> find any. Like, how did it actually come to be well, that you realised? It's kind of what you were saying. It's like, you know, because, um, you know, what happens underwater is largely out of sight, out of mind. Mm. So these ecologists, Mel Coleman um, and her team, they used to live in the south coast where crayweed mm -hmm. is everywhere. everywhere. And then yeah. when they moved to Sydney, you know, it took them a while, but they were like, you know, there's something missing here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, where's, where's crayweed? There's no crayweed. And then they they did some proper kind of detailed surveys and they looked at the whole metropolitan coast, coastline and they confirmed that it had gone missing. And then they did some digging to try and work out why. And they found the link with uh, pollution. And I guess the um, the next step then is when I, when I came in, and a whole bunch of other colleagues like Ziggy Marzinelli and Alex Campbell. But then we took that and went, okay, can we do something to fix that? Can we find a way to bring crayweed back? And we started with very small scale kind of experiments just to see whether it could return. Actually, the first thing we did is we measured the biodiversity because we wanted to make sure that you know, because there are other seaweeds in Sydney. And if the other seaweeds, you can think of seaweeds like trees, right? So you have lots of trees and the trees are more or less supporting the same bird life and the same insects. Maybe it's no big deal if there's one species that is missing, right? Um, however, if you find that that species actually supports very unique biodiversity, then maybe it's worth restoring it. And that's what we did with crayweed. So we first looked at all the biodiversity, we confirmed that actually it was a very important species that was supporting a unique set of species. And then we said, okay, well, let's try and bring it back. And we, we, yeah, it worked incredibly well. It really goes to show how when you, you know, give nature a bit of a, a push, a bit of a helping hand, its ability to kind of kick off. It's amazing. It's, it is it's, amazing. Yeah. I, I find looking at farmers that have taken a regenerative path and brought animals, insects, pests, weeds, everything and plants into harmony together. Um, and you go from these arid kind of monoculture or dirt situations that find it really hard to recover from growth, really hard to grow anything, but then you bring everything that works together in and then everything works. Yeah, and then it's kind of nearly like magic, right? Like yeah. Kind of ecosystem things. And yet so obvious. Mm, absolutely yeah yeah so i i guess that's the main reason for focusing on crayweed you, you know and 
in other parts of Australia, it's completely healthy. So we don't need to do that. And partly that was also attractive in the sense that it's kind of rare to be able to come across a problem that is so fixable. You know, we're talking about only 70 kilometers of coastline. This is doable in our lifetime. You know, all we need is the the, the resources and the time and the money. And that's where the, the hoodie kind of idea came came up, right? Like, and when we started talking, they were like, you know, so how much money would it be to to just restore the whole of Sydney? I was like, you know, we've done the numbers and it's only a million dollars with a million dollars. No, that's nothing. You know, in the greatest scheme of things, it's not it's not that much money, right? Oh, um, there's like 50 Sydney siders who could write a check for that this afternoon. That's so, I mean, you know, it's not a lot of money in these days. Yeah, so that's that's that was also quite attractive in the sense that yes. we thought, okay, um this this is something that we can tackle and we also wanted to use this project as a way of raising awareness about seaweed forests, kind of mm-hmm. more broadly, more generally. And we thought that because we had, um, once it had worked, once we did the science and we showed that we could bring it back, we thought that um, a good news environmental story where we're fixing a problem would be a better tool to raise awareness and to get yes. people excited. Something right? tangible. Something tangible. We started this. This is where it's at. This is how much carbon it's sequestering already. This exactly. is how much lobsters come back. This is how much abalone's come back for the Chinese restaurants. <laughs> you know, everybody kind of starts to feel invested then, different people with different interests and likes That's, and yeah. yeah. Exactly. So and yeah, it's true actually that it it kind of if it, it attracts the conservationists, but it also attracts the fishers, right? Because they can see the benefits. So mm. yeah, it ticks a lot of boxes in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. And as part of conservation, do you feel that um, that articulation of the various groups that would stand to benefit? It's because you need that buy-in, right, to create more noise. Yeah, it makes a, a really big difference, I think, when mm. you get that kind of um, multi kind of, yeah, multi-stakeholder kind of when they when you get them together and and they're all agreeing on the same thing that's that's a very strong message yeah absolutely um and I think also as you said just that ability to achieve something it's not just this vague thing out there that if we all you know and we have to trust it's much more um it seems much more linear like plottable on a graph yeah and, and I think, think humans that, quite like being able to see tangible benefits quickly. Yeah, and being part of a solution because yeah. I, think, I think there's so much um, guilt, right? Because, yeah. when, you know, globally we know that we're doing damage to the environment and, you know, we we know that sometimes we take a, you know, take away coffee cup that is like one single use and there's so much, so much about doing the right thing is 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 kind of... Personal guilt you know it relies on or it kind of ends up making you feel guilty which is kind of exhausting right it's heavy and it also is easily rejectable because in our busy modern lives you think you know what I'm trying to get two kids through school you know pick up the dog do the thing look after my aging parents and you want to make me feel bad about everything that I stuff up with and I just think the brand of of conservation needs some work in terms of how we actually get people um, incorporated 
while not feeling completely overwhelmed, ashamed or guilty of every way that they're not doing a great job in conservation. It's like Exactly. Yeah. And I think mm. the, the cool thing for me is that um, with Cray, we, uh, we do a lot of community engagement and community plantings and that kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, so people may help the project by donating, but then they, they also come to the beach and they get to help us for the day. And then they help, you know, they get to see the crayweed and touch it and identify it and then the next time they go for a snorkel they can actually you know they can see it they can go oh my god like that was That's not there because before, I and now it is, mm. you know and it's and I think people love being connected to nature and you know understanding it better and you know not many people can tell different seaweeds apart right they're all kind of the same so when you kind of get that extra bit of knowledge and appreciation for how you know you know the intricacies of nature it makes you it it helps you feel closer to it and I think there's benefits that come from from that so yeah I think that that was kind of something that so that's why we went quite heavy on the science communication with the project so it wasn't just about the science it was about sharing our story with people and and we've also done over the years a lot of um collaboration with artists um to kind of you know yeah connect people to the ocean and the science that we're doing but in a more emotional way rather than just um you know stats and facts and figures which are you know Less. Yeah, well, it becomes a part of everyone's story then. Yeah. Whereas traditionally they were the, um, and I'm not putting anyone down or generalising about any groups of people here, but if we think about activism and conservation, we think people change to a tree and then regular people in the regular system. And there's like nothing in between. So no one for decades has ever felt like there was anything other than chaining yourself to a tree um to do something um effective and I think modern conservation and environmentalism needs to bridge that gap where everyone can feel connected to the story in some way um so it's not a I'm not that type of person therefore I guess that's not what I do exactly Um, yeah yes no that's absolutely true and I think I think you know things are changing I do feel like there's been a bit of a wave of change over the last five years so 100 percent yeah a lot more projects where yeah where people are actually involved hands-on in you know restoring dunes or you know coastlines and underwater and and I think Mm. I see a lot of value in that yeah it's beautiful and you mentioned if people can come and help out for the day what does that look like? You know, how does someone know that they can come and help out for the day? Because I'm thinking as a family, we've got a teenager. I mean, what an amazing way for him to know that we can actually do something um, and be a part of that. Yeah, we we do these community plantings. They're always part of some kind of event and there's Mm -hmm. always some kind of trigger, you know, to to get it organized um yeah. often people send us emails and then we put them on a list and then when we organize one of those events we let everybody know but for example yeah we we organized this seaweed forest festival uh in manly last year and as part of that we did a couple of community plantings in in freshwater mm-hmm. i think about a month ago we did a community planting in bondi and that was linked to 
um, surfers for climate and like some kind of got it so you join with yeah. local groups yeah we often and, yeah. yeah there's often because obviously it costs money to organize yeah of course um but we we are always looking for opportunities to mm. raise money to connect with local communities so and we have forests you know in, in kuji in marubra in bonda in uh, freshwater in manly in lots of places which that's the other thing actually about this project that because it's happening right in the most populated city in the whole of Australia, it's particularly easy to connect with people. Mm-hmm. You know, these yeah. people are leaving and, and people love the ocean. Sydney siders are very proud of their marine environment. They just don't know much about what's underneath, you know. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, like a lot more, a lot of people know more about the Great Barrier Reef. A lot of Sydney siders know yeah. more about the Great Barrier Reef and the problems it faces than about their local environment, um, which may be only a few kilometers away. Mm. So that's that's kind of interesting. Mm, it is interesting. Um, I was actually just joking with someone the other day that I knew better my way better around Paris than I did around my own city sometimes. And I think sometimes it's because something's special and not in your everyday, you retain more facts about it maybe than like every day yeah. just kind of all becomes a bit of a busy blur of your day-to-day. Um, yeah, I was trying to think about that a little bit afterwards and maybe what you've just mentioned is a similar kind of example. Yes, and look, I mean, I do a little bit of work in the Great Barrier Reef and it's beautiful and gorgeous and there's something about being in, in warmer water where you can mm. spend hours. It's and, stunning and under there. It's, it it's the only place I've ever scuba dived and I've oh, done wow. it twice and it's just so captivating. It's incredible. And my but, uncle is, um, he was a shipwreck diver in uh, Mauritius where my mum's from. Oh, and uh, and so when I was little, there was always this mystical, magical connection to hearing the stories from under the sea. Um, but it was more about the conquests and shipwrecks and more of that kind of stuff. And it's only in my later years that I became more interested in the actual life force yeah. of the ocean. Um, but yeah, I would totally encourage you to go diving or snorkeling in Sydney. Mm. you know so right here in sydney there's some of the best diving that you can do in the yeah. world i'd say um wow. places like um you know cabbage tree bay in manly like the biodiversity there is mm. phenomenal you can see giant cuttlefish and we sea dragons and it's actually incredibly colorful mm. it's you know in some ways it's more colorful than the great barrier reef because the great barrier reef like healthy coral actually looks brown so yeah. the fish colorful but the coral itself is not whereas here um the seaweeds provide the color and there's bright greens and bright reds and overall on a good day it's actually a lot more colorful and and equally inspiring i would say oh that's kind of exciting maybe i have a summer project ahead yeah um so have you actually, has any crayweed taken hold since you've started these projects and drives? Are you noticing already some really good data around how fast it's growing or building? Yeah, it's it's going really well. So the way we do our restoration is we don't go down and plant crayweeds, like plant trees um, on land, say, or with seeds. It's more of a, what we do is we bring mom and dad crayweed in, in small plots to reefs and the process of taking them out of the water in their native habitat um, 
you know, they, they get exposed to the air for a little bit and that kind of stresses them so that when we put them in the new place, the first thing they do is reproduce. Okay, it's like a bit of a strategy of going, well, you know, we might be about to die. So let's just at least try and reproduce and, and get our gametes out there. So that reproduction that happens is the kickstart of the new generation. So the ones that we bring in, we we place them in some mats, which we drill on the seafloor, and they actually survive a few years. Those those the ones that we bring in, but it's actually the babies that they make. We call we call them cravies. Ah, yeah, babies. Cute of the of the new generation, but it's a bit like a nuclear start, and we create you know we create lots of nuclear, and then it just expands by itself naturally. So the kind of win is when you start seeing crayweed in the places where it belongs naturally. Mm. So we, we plant them at about two, three meters of depth. And that's partly for logistical reasons, because it's yeah. very hard to dive in very shallow water. Yes. The waves break, etc. But actually, that's where the crayweed belongs, where the waves mm. are breaking. So And it makes its own way there. And it takes a few years. Um, and then, it, you know, like I, I was, you know, swimming in Kuji this weekend, and We've it, we've not done a lot of restoration there, but it's already expanding, and it's it's yes, in it's hundreds of meters away from where we first planted it. But it's just that amazing. must be so wonderful to see. Yeah. Oh, it's it is wonderful, but it is individuals, you know, and and you know, I'd like to go back and plant some more and accelerate it a bit more. But at the very least, it's it's already expanding, and it's the biodiversity is back. You know, it's about reversing the local extinction of the species used to be completely gone and now we're starting to see individuals so um if we had more funds we would do it faster uh and at a larger scale and that's where damon's project comes in and the seaweed hoodies but even with the little funds that we have we keep going we keep going at the moment we have seven sites um only one of them was really badly affected by the floods so the, the floods that we've been having in the last couple of years have been devastating. Uh, a lot of kelp has died and, and nature is resilient. So we're seeing that the kelp is already coming back. So it's it's not like a fatal loss. Yeah, and I think that's one of the myths around extinction, isn't it? Or the, the lacks of understanding is once it's gone, it's gone. And that's not necessarily the case as you're proving. Yeah, I mean, it depends. Yeah, so if it's local extinction, it's just gone from the one place. And depending mm. on the species, it may come back by itself or it may require that we kind of help it along. But um, yeah, in one, in, it, it's a place in Cornell in Botany Bay, uh, which was one of our most successful restoration in the sense of so many cravids. It, it was amazing. But with the floods, it's completely disappeared, completely. That's the only place where we've seen, yeah, that it hasn't worked. Um, we get urchins uh, grazing on our crayweed. They can cause a bit of trouble, but uh, we're kind of finding ways around that and we can keep trying. Um, but other than that, yeah, they're, all the other sites are working and they're slowly expanding, which is mm. And as a marine ecologist, do you are you able to explain, um, and it's absolutely fine if this is just not your bag, but the reason our coastal um, areas are experiencing these heavy, intense rain bomb-like um, experiences because 
boy, does the internet have some far-fetched, <laughs> I get sent some things and I'm like, oh, please look at least resources down before you decide that that's the truth. Um, but as a scientist, I'd love to hear um, you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, look, it's it's definitely not my field of expertise. That's more the terrain of um, oceanographers and meteorologists, yes. obviously. Um, but I did read an article by some oceanographer, oceanographer colleagues. And yeah, what has increased the most is this very concentrated downpours. Mm. So yes, the, the amount of water is just purely phenomenal. But it's also the actual, the bursts at which um, the rain is happening, which then yes, creates more this rain in less time. Yeah. Now, the reasons for that, I mean, they, they do have to do with um, some very kind of large scale oceanographic patterns like El Nino and La Nina. Everybody knows that we're on a La Nina phase. And it's the combination of this and the Indian Ocean dipole. And they're both natural phenomena that kind of happen. And, and, and when the two things coincide, you just get more rain naturally in this part of Australia. However, of course, with climate change, um, th there's there's going to be more extreme weather events, and and that's kind of very well established. Yeah, We're and it's the the rise in precipitation in coastal areas, right? Because of that slight rise already in general temperature. Yeah, I mean, basically, more more temperature, more energy into the system, more extreme events. Um, but it, it is very complex and it is hard to disentangle, you know, what's natural and what's not, um, especially for specific events. You know, we can say with a lot of confidence that in general, global warming will lead to more extreme. And that includes more drought and more rains and more cold snaps and, you know, more extremes. Yeah. Basically. Mm -hmm. However, when a single event happens um, to actually work out, you know, would this have happened without yes. climate change? No, it's, it doesn't happen so often, basically. Mm. It's the frequency of those events mm. that is that that is not, uh, I was going to say not natural, but it, it's basically that is caused by climate change, uh, yes. which is driven by increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm. The science so, behind all this is incredibly well established. you know, mm. And, and all the more reason to grow our sea forests uh, to sequester Absolutely. more carbon, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And sea forests and land forests and seagrass meadows and mangroves. Um, there's, you know, a whole bunch of coastal habitats that can be restored. And and the, the, the most recent estimate that I saw is that if we protect and restore um, habitats, we can probably kind of make up for about a third of the carbon emissions that we need to reduce to meet the Paris Agreement. So all of this is super important, but at the same time, we have to reduce the emissions of CO2. And and both need to be, you know, no, both things are urgent and need to happen at the same time. If we do all the, rest, all the restoration and we don't lower the CO2 emissions, you know, that's not going to be enough, but also vice versa. So both things need to happen at the same time. Yeah. And lastly, then, what do we do? The people listening now, they're excited. They want to connect with your work. Maybe they want to go buy a hoodie, which I'll put the link to in the show notes. Um, is there a, a simple way that we can 
help your cause? Can we write to our local MP and say, I've just heard Adriana speak and, you know, project or Operation Crayweed seems really important. I want to know what you're um, doing about it as an MP. Like, is that useful? Um, I, I feel like multi-pronged kind of um, attack that different people can get excited at different levels would be super helpful. I mean, I think, um, you know, learning more about it, telling your friends about it, raising the awareness of, of you know, the importance of seaweed forests as a, is a good thing mm. uh, that ends up coming back to more support for conservation mm -hmm. and our project in particular so there's the hoodie and and the dream with the hoodie is to raise a million dollars to restore crayweed to the whole metropolitan coastline and um, on top of that we have our own website where we receive um you know donations and they may be ten dollars or five dollars or twenty five dollars it doesn't and matter what is the url for that website so that's operationcrayweed.com fantastic yeah and then there's also a link there where you can write and <clears throat> connect with us and and if you're interested in coming out and and helping us plan crayweed that's another another way of getting involved and more generally i think um you know uh, using your vote to, mm -hmm. to climate at the forefront uh i think is a really important thing that we can all do and um, yeah, keep pushing the the good fight and looking for those solutions and being part of the solution. I'm really inspired by the amount of startups, the amount of mm. new activity that is happening um, that is um, all about sustainability and, and conservation. Yeah, it's an exciting time in circular design, circular thinking, regenerative thinking. I agree. It's a, a really exciting time to be observing, but also a part of the communities that care and, and are growing. That's right, and you know, in every single industry, um, you can you can you can be part of the fight to make things more sustainable. You know, to you know, are, you know, can we put solar panels in our roof? You know, that all those things, um, and, the, and it's happening, and it's incredibly heartwarming to see. I agree. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing. I feel more hopeful and excited just having spent an hour with you chatting. Uh, and I really appreciate your time in coming on to help us understand better why we need to fight for our beautiful oceans. Thank you so much, Alex. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life uh, and, of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a Lotox Life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Lotox Club for just $49 Australian per year which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro and about 25 pounds, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.